0: Hello, welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is Toby Kent. Hey Matt.
1: Hi everyone. Before Matt and I go any further, on Matt's and my behalf, we'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, um, and we'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and, and to any First Peoples on whatever lands you may be listening to this recording from. That is... Acknowledgement is particularly pertinent uh, as we're going to talk in a little while to Dr. Michelle Maloney, the co-founder and convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. What exactly that means, uh, we will live to Michelle to get into. But Michelle's unbelievable spirit, entrepreneurial flair in terms of not necessarily from a business perspective, but in terms of creating things and things that are in very conscious Harmony and linking with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait uh, Islander peoples across Australia is um, really, really rich. So I think everyone will enjoy this conversation.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we'll introduce a little bit more about her. After we have this little discussion, Toby, I've just had my second child. So I've now got two children, one that's about to be 18 months and a newborn – Mm-hmm. A girl and a boy, we're super excited, my partner and I, and it makes me want to ask you, a father of two, mm-hmm. a, a family man, uh, I, I often refer to you as Father um, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> father Toby,
1: I, li- I like that as a kind of like Father Ted, the mm. Irish
0: thing. Father, did you enjoy that show?
1: I did quite like it, mm. yeah. Uh, the one I particularly liked, i am I'm, I'm never that good at, there aren't that many shows that I'm brilliant at sticking with, although I'm a little bit better since being locked in a house and with, with uh, streaming uh, services. But the one I particularly like was, uh, and for any fans out there, uh, fans of Father Ted, uh, I apologise because I can't remember any of their names or whatever, but there's this guy and he's like, would you look at that Count Ted? It's tiny! He's like, No. It's just a long way away. <laughs> but the way they did it was absolutely brilliant. I just loved the, the way I'm sort of making a really great joke out about perspective, perspective. which I have just butchered. No. Um, so sorry, Father Ted. I sorry think anyone cow. that
0: loves Father Ted would be just ecstatic that we mentioned it yeah. um, in 2022. and twenty-two. Twenty-two. So, Father Toby, <laughs> two two children... <laughs> What do I need to know? What, what, what is your experience of family and fatherhood been and what advice might you give to me and other new parents out there, maybe from your mistakes as well as your triumphs?
1: I know there are certain assumptions in that question, Matt, i.e. that I've made mistakes. I think one of the interesting things actually about that idea of you know, triumphs and making mistakes, there are not many things in life where because you've done it once or twice – that people feel like they're experts. But parenting, boy, does everyone know how to do it. People who haven't even been parents love to give advice. So I'm, I'm not sure that I have, uh, or maybe I'm wary of, of stepping into that space. One thing I would say uh, is the change in dynamic between having one child and two. So at its simplest, having a baby, having your first child, changes your life. And having a second ends it. <laughs> two on one, two parents, I mean, again, I'm making certain assumptions about family makeup and so on. But even if it's just one on one, you know, it's kind of manageable. But once you start getting two, let alone more, you know, that dynamic changes. And and I think, you know, you can take one child up, you go to especially when they're small, put them in a cot, go out to the local pub, whatever it might be two that dynamic changes and suddenly you are just in service of them
0: and 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 i'm already finding this they're just at once they're at different ages they're at different stages of development which means they need completely different things and and levels of attention and what you could do with a toddler can't be done with a newborn and vice versa necessarily and that would i'm assuming just keep happening as they get older
1: yeah i think so i've got two boys who are about to turn 11 and 13, and, and their ages have almost kind of come back together again where they're doing a lot of very similar things. And But I think that's going to flip again uh, as the older one, you know, the difference between being 16 and 14 is actually often quite a lot. And so um, I, I think they will sort of – I don't mean hopefully they won't grow apart. They're very close. But uh, I think their activities and interests will will draw apart again. But I was talking with some friends just the other day. They have a a thirteen year old, and then a three year old and a five year old. And they were saying that they're essentially running two families. I mean, at least we we you know, mean you you may go on to have many more children. Um, at least for now, the two that you have are similar-ish in age. Um, but yeah, that sort of ten year age gap means make that certainly makes it really hard. It,
2: yeah,
0: oh, I said this the other day to to Lauren, my partner. I said um, my cutoff is Christmas twenty twenty four, and then no more kids to keep them together. You're getting and a vasectomy on Christmas? On Christmas Day. On Christmas. Santa Claus down this chimney and chopping and snip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I know if he's got sanitized materials or not um, after that North Pole voyage. I don't know yeah. Are we at the start or the end of his his trip. Oh, we should be pretty near the beginning, right? Yeah, this so going to be, he's probably yeah. only done a couple of snips by then, really. Well,
1: I mean, I think the bigger issue is I don't think he'll have done any snips, <laughs> so you're going to be his first.
0: Uh, uh, but those reindeer are surely breeding like crazy if they're not snipped or, or are they all male. Yeah. I'm not so, sure. Yeah,
1: I mean, if you're happy getting your vasectomy done by a veterinarian, uh, then, they, then, they may then have the have fact that hand. Santa may have <laughs> desexed the reindeer... <laughs> it's
0: not qualifying. <laughs> um, so on, on that note, um, I mean we've got a, a very serious conversation coming up with Michelle that we're, we're extremely, you know, very much looking forward to. But I've got a couple more questions for you as a, as a new dad, as I said. One is you said your two boys are close to, you know, not only in age but they're friends. Did, was that an organic thing or did you have to nurture that and foster that somehow?
1: I, I think there are a few things going on. It's a good question. I, I haven't necessarily, I'm not sure how much thought I've given it before. So, I mean, I think, yes, we try to nurture it because we try to encourage a generally respectful, being nice to each other, dare I say, loving family. I think it's also helped by their personalities. I'm not sure what I'm going to do to the, our family dynamics with the statement that I'm about to make. But I know that my, and apologies, this is going to talk directly to you, but my wife is older than her brother, and she really feels it's only in a sense they're not just young adults, but sort of more mature adults, that they're really able to enjoy a, a friendship. Because her view, um, and I have seen this play out in, a, in other uh, ways, is that, Because on the whole, not always, but on the whole, girls mature that bit faster than boys. She really felt like her brother was just an annoying younger brother. And so the three-year age gap they had was kind of extenuated. At the same time, um, one of my closest friends, or or, or they're both friends, uh, and the sister is older and she's... They've just got a lovely friendship and and I always have done. So I'm not suggesting that's a blanket rule, but I think there's something in that um, and not something that you necessarily as a parent can totally manipulate. Um, And I think the other thing that I really have found, and I'm sure you've already found this, on the one hand, parenting is so important, the modelling you sort of show, uh, and on the other hand, from a really young age you get the person the baby that you get uh so we're very lucky that my older son is really tolerant and has always been a pretty almost gentle kind of quite a gentle older brother um never got that upset when his younger brother smashed everything and whatever not suggesting there weren't a few tantrums between the two along the way but yeah so i i I think I think as parents, we do everything we can to try to create the right environment, uh, and and how that plays out is also then just down to circumstance and these little people as as individuals.
0: Yeah, and without wanting to to drag this conversation out, there's there's a couple of things. One is that I found that being a parent has changed me, who I am, mm-hmm. and who I want to be. Mm-hmm. I've realised how critical that modelling. Is in a way because they do copy everything that you do. Yeah, um, they really take on like I've yeah, as I said, eighteen month old. The things that she comes out with sometimes, I'm like, where did she learn that? Mm-hmm. And then you realise it was you. <laughs> you know, like why is she saying that or why is she doing that or you know how is she acting like that's because I have that mannerism. Yeah, she now does. There's personality that's entrenched and genetic and there from mm-hmm. the beginning, but then there's also that. Instantaneous sort of modeling and copying behavior that they they take on board because you are there. The the thing they see mostly, yep. um, in most cases, and maybe before we get on to, you know our, the main show today, another question for you, Toby, is that you know that mirror being shone on you. Did you have any enlightening moments where you realised, hey, like I really am the you know one of the two biggest influences on on these kids? I thought you were going to say.
1: I'm realised I really am the father. Uh, <laughs> uh, the a mirror doesn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it can. I guess you can. Well, look it a lot, helps. But, yeah. um, Ge- genetic testing. Uh, and that, that is, I mean, the, the, the DNA testing is, or, or genetic testing, it's not necessarily DNA, I think. Both. I guess it's genes fundamentally DNA. To, yeah. Maybe this is another uh, Well, We'll, we'll another talk about it. We'll find a geneticist. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, there are there are funny things, that, you know, that comes down to those traits and things, and you just do sometimes see it as like, oh, my goodness, that is, there is part of me there. Yep. Um, the simple answer is yes. Um, I'd love to give you a really good example straight away. I think one of the ones uh, which is pretty funny and also sort of talks a bit to parenting and good intention and so forth was when my oldest son about 18 months. He developed a bit of habit of shouting in not quite fear but definite upset. Daddy's helping! <laughs> uh, so for all of my best intentions, uh, and, uh, he could see that I was a flawed human.
0: <laughs> well, at least he announced it so you wouldn't go unnoticed.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm still working on trying to improve.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Toby. Um, I'm more enlightened for that conversation.
1: And if you want to be really enlightened about many things, you should listen to Michelle Maloney, who's coming up. So we'll get, as we always do, Michelle to give uh, a bit of a background about herself and, and how she got to be... The co-founder and convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, the co-founder and director of the Future Dreaming Australia, the co-founder and director of the New Economy Network Australia, the adjunct senior fellow in Law Future Centre at Griffith University, and on and on. It really is quite impressive. Um, And rather than reading out Michelle's uh, whole and very impressive bio right now, um, we'll hand over to Michelle to introduce
0: herself. Thank you, Toby. Here is Michelle. Michelle welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you for having me. To get us started can you tell us a little bit about your personal upbringing and a little bit about you know yourself where you grew up some of the things that inspired you to get involved in the environmental and um, academic space as well and then some of your professional history.
2: Thank you. What a nice question. It's not often we get invited to to ponder our early beginnings. Um, so I was born in the middle of Queensland in Longreach, out where uh, Qantas was also born apparently, <laughs> and I spent my formative years as a teenager growing up in Barcaldon, a really little town in the 80s. Particularly everything felt small because we weren't as connected as we are now. Um, and interestingly, I think I was fifth generation non-Indigenous person in that little town. So um, I originally, my peoples come from Ireland um, and a lot of them ended up over here in lots of different ways, like my great-great-grandmother emigrated, whereas I think my earlier relatives were definitely brought over in shackles. Uh, the legend is that our, one of our Irish ancestors was a horse thief, but I'm not sure if that's a romantic pondering or something. But either way, um, one of the convicts came in down into Victoria and wandered up eventually uh, up through and into Queensland, and that's where some of my gang came from. Um, In terms of early influences, I guess, as a little kid growing up in the bush, and I was always curious and I was always a reader, um, I guess I had a very curious brain, so I apparently loved nature from the moment I could open my eyes. There was never an epiphany of, oh, I must save nature. It was always, um, I do tell two stories that I think are kind of really show who little Michelle was. Little Michelle, um, probably long before I was two years old, would often, um, there was one of the houses that we lived in I would Sit on the little veranda and watch the frogs in the bromeliads along in pots in the garden. And apparently, I would sit there for quite some time watching the frogs and then very gently rearranging them and moving them from bromeliad pond to bromeliad pond. Um, and I could barely, you know, I was just in nappies, wandering around, adoring these little creatures. And mum said she watched me to make sure I wasn't hurting them, but I was very gentle. So, if anyone doesn't know what a bromeliad is, it's in the middle of it, it's like a little cup. And it's always it always got water in it. And these had little baby frogs everywhere. So so for, literally from the moment I could walk around, I was harassing and cheerfully looking at animals. And the other great story, which I really love, is I think I was five and my nana was visiting. And um, <laughs> mum said, let's go for a walk around the block. And nana said is Michelle coming? I don't really want to go if Michelle's coming. And of course, mum's first thought was, why not? And then Nana said, because all the dogs and all the cats end up following us. And Nana was a petite little lady, quite scared of dogs. And so I just had this magnetic attraction to all fairy things and all creatures. So so little Mish was very much a plant and animal lover, absolutely crazy for it. And my influences were really, I was lucky because um, growing up, So I was 10 in 1980, put it that way, the timing of where I was growing up. My mum and dad were really quite remarkable for the time and place. They were not... What you would call today environmentalists, um, in terms of being organised or part of a group, but they both absolutely loved nature. Um, if they went on holidays to the beach, they'd often end up with a big bag collecting litter. Your dad and mum would torture me by taking me for a long walks through the bush and pointing out plants that I didn't appreciate till a lot later. That you know, so mum and dad were huge influence. Dad's passed on, which is sad. I absolutely adored him. My mum is still here, and she's still a, a huge inspiration. And then the other. It was really, it's almost a cliche now, but as a kid growing up in the 80s in the middle of Queensland with just one TV ch- uh, channel, mm-hmm. ABC, Sunday afternoon documentaries with David Attenborough, you know, Uncle David. I was invited to write something once and I said that my, my the three core influences in my early years were mum and dad when I was really little, um, Uncle David throughout my sort of primary and high school years as being the primary font of all knowledge about wildlife and other places and you know, would take us away from our little country town uh, via good old-fashioned TV long before the internet. Um, and then I was very lucky, but this is later on in my 20s, when um, I started to connect with some Indigenous people in central Queensland and started to work with them on a range of projects like cultural heritage, Native Title, in the sort of mid-late 1990s. And that was when, now we'd call it my decolonizing journey began, but my sort of getting a little deeper into the truth of the history of this place and the impacts on Indigenous people here um, and really starting to see the world. I was going to say differently, but interestingly, it resonated with me so much to sit with the mob and look out over a river and talk about country because that's exactly how I felt. Not the spiritual aspects. I know I grew up very differently, but that absolute deep love blueprinted into your DNA that the living world is amazing and precious and worth looking after still using but looking after. So so I think that's probably the the triumvirate of influences, yeah, yeah parents that's... Uncle David and the Gungaloo community.
1: No, and we'll come back to that, but you have just reminded me of a story and I'm so pleased that you do what you do and why my father does what he does, but he was sent away to boarding school at quite a young age in the USA and um, probably at about a similar age with you and your frogs. Uh, <laughs> for some reason – And I'm not sure, you know, you'd avoid it nowadays. But anyway, he had a hypodermic needle, age five, and and these huge bullfrogs. And he thought he really wanted to cure all the bullfrogs. And the story goes that as he went around being this budding veterinarian that he never became, he kept finding more and more dead bullfrogs and thus proving his concern. And so he kept injecting more and more.
2: Oh, that's <laughs> an awful story. It that's is. an it awful is. story.
1: Uh, and that's why I say that's why uh, I'm very pleased that you ended up doing uh, what you were
0: doing. Well, <laughs> on that note, I, I, I saved the life of a um, little a skink gecko type thing in the backyard, there was one crawling around. I'm like, it's a cold night, I better build it a house. So I um, trapped <laughs> it in a brick enclosure thinking that that would, you know, protect it from the elements overnight and in the morning it was just solid as a rock. So um, I'm probably along that pathway <laughs> rather yeah. than your pathway. But, you know, the attempt was there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, and maybe maybe to, to be cheerful about it, it shows that children do want to interact with the living world often um, from the early days of their life. Um, But, yes, no, I I don't think any of my interactions were ever lethal. Um, (laughs) I do remember visiting cousins who were crazy about killing ants, you know, little boys running around. And and I used to endlessly defend the ant nests. Um, And and there was, amongst all my cousins, the cry of, don't hurt it. And that's what I used to say all the time. Don't hurt it. Don't Mm. hurt it. Put it back. How
1: funny. Um, And that's... uh, to re-elevate the conversation but that sort of don't hurt it mantra sort of seems to have really gone forward into the work that you do now perhaps with some more professional and framing around it but nonetheless maybe sits kind of at the core and so you spoke about the triumvirate of your influences and then really this sort of caring for country healing of country understanding the two-way relationship and and maybe that relationship goes beyond a relationship but really seeing ourselves as part of nature. So can you give us a sort of sense of what you're doing now, of of the myriad things, how all of that comes together?
2: Mm, Yeah, no. um, Well, I think to cut a long story short, ten years ago myself and a couple of others um, met actually it'd be 12 years ago, we met at a conference in Adelaide about wild law, which was my first um, interaction with the, the meeting place of Deep Ecology and Earth Jurisprudence, the work of Thomas Berry. And that was kind of this really nice moment of me connecting a lot of my several decades of work before then, back into a space around law and governance. So I might mention what we're doing now, but then jump backwards a bit more to see how all those threads came together. So so today I'm the national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, which is AILA. And our mission in life is to help people understand and implement in practical terms, um, how we can shift from human centered and extractivist modes of being, particularly in the industrialized societies Um, towards an ecocentric, regenerative way of being. Um, And our way of being isn't so much about... I mean, our scale of work isn't so much about personal change, although it's hugely connected to it. We're very interested in broad systems change around the governance structures that underpin our societies. So... That particular framing is from Thomas Berry's book, The Great Work, Our Way Into the Future. Um, and as I say, when I went to this conference and came across his material and different folks talking about it, I was, so, I was quite excited to see that there was a place for a governance nerd and a, a recovering lawyer to actually apply some of the things I was interested in into that earth-centred notion. So there's noise in the background. If you have to cut this out, it's my dog. Being silly. I hope you didn't well,
1: hear that. I actually heard from your aunt that they follow you everywhere.
2: <laughs> they are, they're my wolf pack. They're bloody everywhere. Um so yeah, so Thomas Berry wrote this wonderful book, The Great Work, and in it he analyzed what he called these core underpinning structures of industrialized society. So law and government, economics. Um, universities but we look at education broadly and also religion and he said that within the industrialized west in particular because he was an American writer um, all of these have been uh, have emerged from many hundreds of years if not thousands of years of human centeredness and for myself as I say as as a cheerful governance nerd someone really fascinated with how human beings organize themselves within a society I just found this was a wonderful framework to unlock a deeper understanding of not just why we need to be sustainable, but why we really need to understand our culture, where we come from, why we do what we do, and how we can change the rules and how we can really transform. If you have to look at it in terms of Western knowledge, uh, law, economics, education, now in other societies they don't break, they didn't used to break up um, knowledge centres quite like that. So. Earth jurisprudence, Thomas Berry, that was a direct inspiration for the creation of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance and has helped us with the framing. The, so the question is, how do we shift these big underpinning systems in our modern society? And really, the last 10 years has been an exploration and a grand experiment with a very small NGO, which has been led by all of us were volunteers up until a year ago, which is amazing, just passionate. Um, what, what does that look like and how can we explore different aspects of that work? And To simplify it, if you look at the law side of that, then we began by looking at rights of nature and what is becoming a sort of global movement around saying, hey, the living world is not just human property, which is how the Western legal system treats nature. Uh, The living world is much more than that. It's, it's, It's the primary source of life. It's certainly not just belonging to humans. How do we create a legal system that is not human-centered. And so there's a whole bunch of other things that fit within the earth so Earth laws side of it, whether it's eco side, exploring indigenous first laws, understanding the history of Western legal systems and the elitism and property basis of capitalism. So there's all these wonderful issues to explore and then practical threads to sort of pull on and see what we can unpick and put back together to make change. But it was also during that first couple of years of building Ayla that we realised every single environmental issue ran into this huge barrier of the economic system. Um, and as I just mentioned in the Thomas Berry Earth Jurisprudence Framework, um, economics is a huge, huge part of our modern culture, ideology, discourse, societal structures. You know, there's so much critique of that. And it turned out, long story short, myself and a few others, several years after creating Ayla, a different group, said what we'd love to do is have an alliance of people interested in changing the economic system, stepping away from kind of buying into the government position on neoclassical and capitalist economics and doing a civil society take on what should what should economics look like so that, in my case, my question's always, how can our economic system serve the planet and not destroy it? So that's why we then um, created the New Economy Network Australia, or Nina. It kind of emerged in 2016 but was formally born in about 2018 but we've had a lot of peer-to-peer and network growing and now it's a wonderful national cooperative with thousands of people connected and around 500 paid members kind of jumping in and we've got a nice distributed governance model where different hubs are self-organising and they bring knowledge into the network and I think we're entering a new phase of, of what we might get up to but I can talk about that and of course ever present throughout all of this work was my deep respect for Indigenous knowledge and the First Peoples of this continent and in other parts of the world. And so the other organisation that I'm involved with very happily and very proudly is Future Dreaming Australia, um, which I co-founded with the absolutely marvellous Indigenous people, um, Mary Graham and Ross Williams, um, dear friends, and um, we run lots of workshops and things together. And We've now got a fourth director, James Lee. So, again, another triumvirate, another three. So, Ayla, we often talk about Ayla as the mothership, but it's, it's really made up of the fabric of our analysis of law and economics and education, um, ethics and arts we also look at, and then Indigenous knowledge. So, yeah, so that's what I'm doing today. Um, in amongst all of that, Yeah, I don't know if you want me to go back, but I can talk about the undergraduate degrees, the struggle as a country kid doing a law degree at ANU, whoa, and then vowing and declaring I would never touch law again and then I think a decade and a half later slowly being drawn back into doing a PhD in law and regulations, which was really handy. (laughs) Well, well,
0: maybe just on that, Mm. what did bring you back into wanting to, uh, further, your understanding of law and how it fits into the change that you wanted to see
2: in the world? It's mm, an interesting question. A quick potted history of my career from, say, when I left Barcauldon and went to university might help me um, answer that question. So, when I left Barkey, I was a kid that had not got any friends or relatives who had ever been to university. So, you know, there's a lot of stories of kids who've just kind of popped up with intellectual interests in places and times where others around them didn't have it. So I didn't really have a clue what I was going to study. Um, And this comes back to that question I think you spoke of before, which is, you know, where we get our inspiration from. And I love the environment from the days of the frogs and the bromeliads and the cats and the dogs. And throughout my high school in this little country town, I was a nerd, proud of it, but I loved studying and I loved learning and I just sort of ate up all the humanities subjects But whenever I would think about kind of trying to help the environment it didn't seem like something I was allowed to do or able to do because I wasn't into science and I couldn't do maths and it seemed that biology and science were the things you did you know to be a David Attenborough not that I aspired to be him I just loved him. Um, So it was when I went to university I had the option of going to University of Queensland or Canberra. I was always interested in politics and how people work together and where is the justice kind of questions. So I started out in an arts degree looking at politics and history. I absolutely love history. I love to see the reasons and the origins of everything from language to actions to institutions. Um, And after the first year uh, at ANU, surrounded by incredible young people really doing grand things and learning about justice, I applied to go into law because I thought as a kid in the bush, a lawyer was someone who handled the family divorce or a bit of conveyancing. There was no concept of a bigger world of policy makers or social justice uh, advocates nothing uh, none of that was on my radar but when I got to uni and I saw these young people really passionate about justice and met some terrific academics and yeah so that's when I applied to go into law but about a couple of years into my combined degree being a country kid and not being all that well off I started working and switched from being a full-time student to being a part-time student working full-time um, and I had spent my summers nerding out, working for National Parks and the Resource Assessment Commission, anywhere I could learn and meet other cool people who love the environment. So I started working for the Department of Environment. And I, I really only spent a couple of years in a legal policy unit um, as a very young person, knowing nothing. Um, but I realised the law was so slow moving and I was way too impatient. I kind of wandered off from law before I even got started. I'd never wanted to be a practising lawyer, never had any confidence to be someone who would stand up and litigate or anything. So I worked in government policy, but I only really lasted five years and then I took off and I started working with Indigenous mates. I was volunteering to help them on different projects and I went walkabout and traveling. Um, And I also very proudly worked in the first agency created in Australia to address climate change in 1995, the Sustainable Energy Development Authority, CEDA. Um, And that was my first real engagement with the reality of climate change. It was very early days, but we all knew what was happening. We all knew, you know, um, what was on the radar, what was going to come along. And so I spent a couple of years on and off there and and also travelling, getting to know all the different ways we could build social change and transform systems. But I'd pretty much left law. I was only doing sort of quasi-legal work in government for a couple of years on interesting issues like contaminated sites and legal liability for different things. But I got very bored in high levels of government work. It seemed so far away from the real world and I wandered off and started exploring, travelling the world, working in other places, working in climate change and then also working with um, a lot of Indigenous mates in between things and volunteering to help them with stuff. So in terms of coming back to the law, I had zero interest in coming back into law until I realised when I was pregnant and about to have a baby Mm. that I could no longer do all the travelling and the volunteer work in different communities um, and picking up contract work randomly. I had to be a grown-up. And when I was looking at maybe I should do a PhD to kind of reconsolidate my knowledge, I started looking at the potential of law and regulation to reduce what I see as one of the huge problems, you know, unsustainable consumption. So that brought me back to law, but it was only a year into that, part-time PhD that I came across wild law um, or the topics of earth laws. And that's when I really, it really clicked. And I think I mentioned before, when I started to look at the critique of modern systems and I looked back on my own little career, looking at law, engaging with indigenous peoples and their knowledge, looking at the impacts of an economic system that had, you know, been built on fossil fuels and had forged this terrible, terrible world of climate change and environmental devastation Um, it all sort of came together around the earth laws stuff and that's why I was so happy to start building AILA and it was only ever meant to be sort of professional interest, not so much a hobby. That's not important enough. It was more a place to explore our intellectual passions um, and be free to chat with others who were doing the same and then over 10 years it grew up. So law was very important to me as a student. Um, I barely understood some of it but a lot of it seemed really cold and very anti-environment and anti-person and anti-justice. And that's why, as a young person, although I really value to this day having done the degree, there were many times I wanted to quit and get out and go and do something else, you know, walk in the garden, play with the frogs. Yeah. Um, so, so it is really nice that by connecting with Earth jurisprudence, all of that experience came back into a place that fits with me, which is really pointing the finger back at my own culture and my own legal system going, hey, come on, we can do better than this. So, yeah.
1: You just give us a bit of a sense of what specifically earth laws means uh in the context that you're applying it
2: yeah that's that can be a big question let me think for someone who might not have the fascination with legal and governance systems that i do how to best explain it in the initial deep ecology work that thomas berry did and this is and by the time he wrote our the great work our way into the future he was um you know in his last decades of life, what he looked at was the fact that as he looked across industrialised societies and had these really beautiful framings, he said, you know, we spent since the European Industrial Revolution, we've spent so much time trying to create a wonder world, but really all we've created is a waste world. Mm -hmm. And what he did was look at how the systems that support a society that create a civilization or a culture really become real to our minds and we think that the world we're living in, the systems we've created, um, are important and real. And that industrialised society seemed to have everything pointing in the direction of destroying nature. And he said what we have to do is really centre ourselves as just one member of the wider earth community, really centre ourselves and say we're just one part of this beautiful living world. How do we make sure that our societies are all pointed in the right direction so that our law and our economics, our engineering, all of the things we learn, all of the things we do, are focused on supporting rather than destroying the living world? He called this earth laws or earth jurisprudence. He said what we need is a a new cosmology, a new idea within industrialised societies that the earth is primary and that we're just part of that bigger system so that not just our law but all of these other systems should be supporting the living world and recognising our place in it. So he called that earth laws and it's more than just law, it is the governance and by governance what do I mean? Um, I actually give a lot of talks on this because I love I love what governance is and how people don't really see it because it's invisible. It's literally whenever you get a group of human beings in a room together, how we interact, how we live, work and play together, the rules we make, um, the values that inform the decisions and the resource allocation. Um, So governance is much bigger and law and economics and all these other things, politics fit under it. So earth laws or earth jurisprudence is this call, not just by Thomas Berry, but obviously it links also to Um, very different traditions of Indigenous people going, uh, yeah, of course we're just part of the living world. The rest of the living world is sacred and we're so lucky to be part of it. But so Earth Laws is really a call to say all of our societies should be Earth-centred and we should really be having the kinds of day-to-day ethics and legal systems that support a human society that cares for the planet. And that sounds all big and um, motherhoody, but when you break it all down to very specifics, you can kind of see the difference between an extractivist mode of being and um, a much more regenerative or earth-centred way of being.
0: Yeah, so uh, well, it resonates so much with, with me and I'm sure Toby as well, this this idea and and so many of our listeners I'm sure are feeling the same way, That that why, why do we have this system? Why can't we change it? We all feel like we want to. Most people that we have a conversation with one-on-one seem to see that there's you know a a broken diseased system Uh, there's almost a cancer on this planet and not only on the the natural world but our societies as well and we're seeing that um, in so many manifestations yet we find it so difficult to even visualize the way out we can all sort of say you know what we don't like or something we'd like to add or remove but we, we we can't visualize a different way often and maybe that's where we fail as a society or as, a, as as many groups to make real and lasting change. You know, that's sort of my, my take on it. I talk to a lot of people that are really cynical about change and about the world or sort of nihilistic, you know, it either doesn't matter who cares, it's all broken anyway, or the, the elite's controlling everything, mm. you know, leave it alone. Mm. Amongst the many sort of optimists activists people i know with hope and that are doing things on their day-to-day to to try to improve the state of things what would you say is one way we can visualize or one example of systems change is it as simple and you know you talked about governance and politics and economics you know there's this new idea to try to bring sort of well well well-being factors into our economics and our budget um there's ideas, you know, that Kate Raworth's "Donate Economics is a new economic structure. There's there's all these different ways that are popping up but don't seem... But, but at the end of the day when it's cold and, and there's sort of gas running out, people are like, let's just turn on all the coal-fired power plants again and go back to the old ways. Can you sort of maybe untangle this disconnect and this... Um, yes. Yeah, for I, me.
2: I can give you Michelle Maloney's take on how do we understand all this stuff And how do we move forward into something different? And the only reason I can answer that question is it's something I've given a huge amount of thought to, and it's the very essence of what we look at in AILA. And everyone has a different approach to the way they think about where we are, how we got here, where we're going. But let me just share some of my thoughts, random thoughts um, from a middle-aged lawyer type. No, so. First of all, I think if you take a long view of human societies, and this is where the history comes in really handy for me, and there's so many different tangents I could take, but let me just start. I'm going to talk about three things. The history of particularly European societies in the last 1,500 years, the current systems and how we got here, and a couple of ways to think about how we move forward because these are the things that, you know, many people struggle with, and if nothing else, the work we've done in AILA, um, the response to Thomas Berry's call to do the great work, these are the things that I think have helped me stay sane in the face of what often does seem to be a pretty crazy world out there. So first of all, let's talk about history, and I know, and I mean just a quick potted view of one aspect of human history. So first of all, if you look at evolutionary history, whether you believe in a creator or evolution, which is more my thing, If you accept that human beings are just one living organism amongst a really deep, complex three-billion-year-old entity floating in the black inkiness of space, that starting point alone brings humility and makes you think, wow, we are just part of this living world. How did we get here? And why are we making such a mess? But if you accept, for starters, that we're just part of the living world, it helps you put a lens on that makes you analyse history a little differently. So there's that first bit. Mm -hmm. And then what I did as a young person really interested in the history of my culture, people from Europe, I was fascinated with why they were always at war and I was really interested in colonisation. And I think if I leave you with a couple of thoughts that help feed into why we have the systems we have today, it might help. Um, And often when I give talks, I have a a set of slides that show European invasion and colonisation of the rest of the world. But let's start with a a little simple thinking exercise. Have a think about what you know about life perhaps in about 1300, 1400. That's pre-European colonisation and invasion of most of the planet. What you sort of had was, you know, incredible cultures around the world, people really working in place, whether you were looking at empires in China, emerging empires in Africa, Lots and lots of localised communities, Indigenous cultures, people doing their thing in their place, invading each other now and then. Some communities did that in different pockets and places. But there was remarkable diversity. Think of the planet Earth, if you look at the socio-cultural map of planet Earth in 1400, as a phenomenal patchwork quilt. All these different colours, different people, cultures, languages, relationships with nature were different. Some people were earth-centred, other folks not so much. And then, when you think about what happened in the 1500s, where the Europeans, a group of people in one patch of the planet, um, started to run out of resources. They'd been fighting and interacting and stealing each other's stuff since um, since the Neolithic times. They started to run out of stuff, and they also started to have the technological capacity to big to build big ships. So they took off to other parts of the world, and a combination of technology and their mindset meant that the map of the world as it looked in 1400 was completely different by 1800. In just 400 years, one group of people, particularly folks who identified their humanity under the national flags, of the British, uh, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, had invaded, taken over and colonised most of the planet. The map of the world looked different. In 1917, there's a a map of... um, the world with the British Empire and its territories and more than like half the planet is red. it's all the same. So what does that mean for the mess we've made? Well what it did was it took a particular group of cultures from a particular part of the world with a very distinct worldview and a very very specific way of organizing and it took it to other places. So those people in the 15 1600s took with them the idea that they were superior, that anyone who wasn't a Christian was a heathen or an animal, Mm -hmm. that the living world was just resources, that God was some form of monotheistic man, so the patriarchy was deep, deep in my culture. So all of those ideas were then taken and, you know, forced onto other places with varying effects. Why does that matter? The sheer concept of colonisation is extractive All of those peoples came to other places to take that stuff, either to stay and live, take over, destroy the local inhabitants, or to take what they could and go home. Um, And I was just listening to a doco the other day on the British East India Company, and some of the remarkable manor houses that people go and visit in the UK were were generated from the wealth of what the Brits took from India. That's a whole other story. So colonial mindset elitist, racist, and not everybody, but these were the institutional aspects and worldviews that came and took over the planet. Flash forward to today, 2021, 2022. The last couple of years, we've had COVID slow us down. We've had people really reflecting on how fast our society moves and really, you know, we're, we're distraught about our impact on the world. But think about it. Where we are right now is really almost a natural progression of that extractivist mode. The European powers who invaded other places were very keen on mining, minerals extraction, um, taking over people, whether it was for textiles, spices, you know, take and use, take and use, and move on when it's done. And that mindset, the extractivist mindset, is really what has born, literally has given birth to the systems we have today. Law, Australian law is built on British law, And many of those aspects are still built in hierarchical, elitist structures, patriarchal, um, definitely extractivist, and our legal system does not see the living world as important. In fact, if you were to put the lens, a pair of glasses on your eyes and look out at the world the way the Western legal system sees it, all you see are people because only people have rights in our legal system and blobby entities that we make called corporations. You will not see through the legal lens a wombat or a parrot or a butterfly. So the systems we have today do feel hard to change because they're many, many hundreds, if not thousands of years old. And I could go, I could wax lyrical about the economic system. My God, you know, consumer capitalism is pointed to. People blame the great acceleration after the 1950s. They blame neoliberalism after the 1980s. But these are all just building on top of at least five or 600 years of extractivist modes of being. Um, the building of wealthy people's wealth through the creation of corporations where ordinary folk and rich folk could pool their money and make even more money and go off and do things. So the systems we have today do feel tricky to change, but um, I, you were saying before you speak to some folks who are um, optimists and others who are nihilistic and really despair about the systems, um, I often jokingly call myself an apocaloptimist I feel deep in my bones that we are heading into a sad place for what we've done to much of the living world. But, and I don't know if it's because of my age, because I'm 52 now, or whether it's just my basic nature. I do feel not so much hope, but I do feel the essence of people's absolute hunger for change. And it has escalated over the last couple of decades. You know, I've been in the environmental space since the mid 1980s, things have shifted and changed. But the last 10 years, there's been a profound leap forward in people's deep hunger for systems change. The key barriers are that the vested interests who built those systems, the wealthy elite, but also people trapped in systems they're born into. It's really hard to, um, well, the bumper sticker quote I like is the last thing a fish will notice is water. And sometimes the last thing a human being will notice is its own culture and its own world views. So looking forward, And this is where I I often cling to earth jurisprudence or, you know, even Thomas Berry's simple framework, just because it's a handy, cohesive framework. Number one, I use earth jurisprudence to critique the system and then I look to earth centeredness in all its forms, including the wonderful, remarkable relationist ethos that Indigenous people in Australia talk about. The way forward is to appreciate that we're one part of the living world try to embrace a different way of thinking in the first place and then look out over the systems we've created and with knowledge and patience and perseverance, unpick the buggers and change them. It's that simple and it's that hard. There is no easy shortcut. There is no one solution fix all um, We have to understand how we got here. We have to understand enough of those systems and we all play a different part. We're like all of the social activists out there, the social justice folks, environmentalists, the good people protecting their local creeks. Everyone is part of this mosaic, this absolutely brilliant array of humanity trying to shift things. The people who save a forest, um, and, you know, name it something and make sure that those animals are safe. The people who come in and do basic law reform, I mean, it's hard enough, let alone transformational law reform, It's a remarkable patchwork cult of people out there doing good work. If climate change wasn't bearing down on us at quite such a rapid pace, I would be completely optimistic that we were shifting away from the way we used to be towards a very different future. And we are smart enough to do it. Will we do it in time to ensure future generations have a livable planet, I've got no idea. Yeah. I I wouldn't even pretend to have the arrogance to know. I mean, I've read read the forecasts. I'm terrified by them. But I like to think that some forms of life, if not human, but others will continue. So that is Michelle Maloney's potted history, how we got here, and maybe some ways to think about going forward.
1: That's amazing. Um, thank you very much for uh, that, Michelle. And I love that phrase, optimist. Um <laughs> I think one of the things Matt and I were talking about when we'd been listening to some of your uh, other work was sort of on the internet and so forth, and you heard, uh, I don't want to drag us back into COVID, not that we've fully left it but anyway in one of the things we listened to you heard actually said there's a an opportunity with this I'm excited by the systems change that may come what would you be your view of where we're at in relation to that statement
2: yeah look I suspect as you said it something like that that statement would have been Michelle Maloney trying to really be as positive as possible. What I saw was Mother Earth given a chance to breathe. And I'm sure anyone who saw that, you know, the footage of animals reclaiming little mm-hmm. villages because the yeah. cars weren't out, um, dolphins swimming in places they hadn't for ages, uh, you know, the complete slowing down of human activity really gave Mother Earth, you know, the clean air in cities in um, China. Uh, I saw um, some footage of some people in India who were just gobsmacked at how beautiful their environment was around the city they lived in, which they could rarely see because of the pollution. So I think that moment in time has been very important because if nothing else, it's shown people that Mother Nature has a chance if we slow down a little and give it a, you know, Don't invade every single molecule of space on the planet with our own activities. Um, What I see now, though, is, and I I kind of, I mean, many people would have, but I kind of dreaded this would happen, the clamouring to go back to whatever normal was or what people thought it was, that kind of fast economic and human society mm -hmm. has definitely risen again. But simple things like people being allowed to work from home more often. Um, a general, almost global acceptance of using online forms of meeting and working. Yeah. Um, I, I think it really gave people a bit of a, a cheerful sort of blip in the horizon of the endlessness of noise and activity of human life to remind us that there are other ways of doing things. Did governments grab that opportunity and transform society overnight? No, of course not. That's not how. That's not really how change happens. Unless, you know. Examples like the, <laughs> the embargo on Cuba, they, they changed their lives overnight because they had to grow food. Um, I, I do think and I hope that the misery of the COVID diseases has at least had one silver lining of showing the world that human beings can be more than just workaholics um, travelling around the planet using carbon and um, creating havoc. But I think it also showed people that systems change is more critical than ever. So I think that's probably all I can say. Do I feel optimistic about what we've learned? I think so. But I know that the big changes that people saw that could have been grappled with at a collective level through government policy, not so much, not so much. And can I
1: ask uh, another not straightforward question, um, which is you've spoken about the um, extractive nature of... European society at a a gross level, but also um, specifically linking it to the industry that we call extractives. Um, And we're in a really interesting time where with the rapid onset impacts of climate change, the shift to renewable energy in particular, but renewable technologies, which simultaneously are demanding with our current technologies... More mining, more extraction. Where do you see the balance? How do we maintain a certain standard of living whilst also being less impactful?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a tricky conversation in our kinds of societies. So first of all, yeah, I think the the issue of um, minerals extraction for renewables has become really a big discussion and an important issue however as someone said if you walk into your bathroom and the the water is poured out of your bathtub all across the floor you don't spend all your time mopping up the floor you turn the tap off so i think even if we're grappling with gosh um, is mineral extraction for pv panels and wind farms going to kill us well let's try to stop the thing that actually is going to kill us first so let's deal with carbon extractivism Mm -hmm. fossil fuel use as quickly as possible, and then we need to do that in partnership with what has gotten lost in all of the stuff over the last couple of decades, but which was huge in the 1970s oil crisis, demand management and energy efficiency. So it's really interesting to me because when I started working at Cedar in 1995, we had sort of three areas of work. Um, You know, one was on renewable energy, the other one was on energy efficiency, and then the rest was sort of around culture change. And energy efficiency was a very important part of the whole discourse. You know, it was people need to use less. Mm -hmm. No one really likes that message in our society. And can I just remind people, there are other cultures where frugality and using less and consuming less is actually a good thing. So this is not, it's not a natural condition for humans to be greedy or to think of themselves as being able to have everything they want all the time. Many other cultures had a bit more self-control, not all. So, Number one, we absolutely have to, have to stop extracting more fossil fuels. If we have to do a minerals extraction to, to think that we're transitioning to renewables, quite frankly at the moment that's a horrible problem but it's less of a problem of what we're doing burning up the planet. But if I was in charge, there would be a phenomenal campaign about redefining the good life. What is it that human beings really need and want to, what well, need to be happy and rather than thinking it as depriving ourselves of all the junk we're used to, the things we think are necessary, um, and this is, this is born fruit in the voluntary simplicity movements, um, and degrowth and many other things, actually going to the nub of what human beings want to be happy and what's been proven to make us happy. And it's been shown over and over again that once you reach a certain livable income, all the money on top of that doesn't actually increase your happiness. You won't have more toys, But it doesn't make a happy life. And there's more depression, mental illness, loneliness and isolation in rich capitalist countries than there ever have been um, in Indigenous and other communities pre-colonisation. So get rid of fossil fuels, pump out a new cultural message. We are children of planet Earth. We can find happiness, deep happiness and contentment in a simpler way of life. But even if that word frightens people, let's redefine the good life And there's been a lot of studies on if you help people slow down just a little bit, and this might be, again, the lasting legacy and gift of COVID. And this is why some communities are advocating for a four-day work week. People don't tend to spend all their time shopping. When you've got an extra couple of days, you tend to lie around and read a book, hang with your family, go for a swim, do some charity work, go and volunteer and weed the garden for someone. Slowing down this insane pace and these expectations we have of what we should have can reveal to people what's really important and it's all these same and I don't want to call them cliches but you know there's all these little quotes people working in oncology units when people are in their last days dying of cancer they don't say they wish they'd had that fourth tv Mm -hmm. they do say I really wish I'd had more time with my grandkids or I really wish I'd had better quality of life or I wish I'd done that course on something else so Our whole society is geared, and it's not our fault entirely. I'd like to apply compassion here. The history of how we got here, the systems we have today, all of these things are are sort of deeply ingrained in the, the emergence of our societies over the last couple of hundred thousand years. What we have now is enough knowledge about what we are doing to make some smarter choices it's not an excuse anymore to say, oh, we don't want to have a simpler life or a different life. It's like, well, you don't really have a choice. If you want humanity to have any kind of future, we just need to be clever and rethink how we live here and rethink what we expect and demand from this little planet, a completely closed system floating around in the middle of space. And I think that's why I love the work we do inside Nina, the New Economy Network. You know, it starts to thread together the human societal aspects of how we make a living to show people, so you think you need to work this horrific job to make enough money to pay the mortgage, and the mortgages were sort of designed by a system to benefit elite wealth. It was never about access to housing. And then suddenly you see all these systems break down, four-day work weeks, universal basic income, co-housing, co-sharing, tiny houses. And these are systems change things that are, are really exciting. You see people break out of, oh, we must have, Our entire solution is renewable energy, and that's just another techno fix, which my culture is really, really, really famous for. If there's a problem, don't don't reflect on yourself. Don't slow down. Don't meditate. Just buy something else or make something else. Produce your way out of the problem. Um, But I think more and more people are seeing the difference. But what's lacking, a cohesive and shared stories and messaging in our communities. And maybe with the new federal government in Australia, maybe we'll hear hints of that, I'm not sure. But if people like me and other social change folks had the budget that the big corporations have for selling their products, I'd be selling the message of, hey, slow down, yeah, And um, let's think about different ways of doing and having an awesome life and not being uncomfortable. Indigenous societies were hugely comfortable. They had great houses. They lived in yummy warm furs and had good food. Like why do we think, you know, a different way of life is going to be horrific?
0: You talked about this, the idea of systems change and the idea of, you know using potentially this corporate budget to to help shift people and and for people to ask almost some new questions about themselves and the way they're living and at the start of the at the start of the podcast you said that you you concentrate more on the systems change and the external stuff rather than the personal change but my question is and and something i often ponder is is that external change possible is it even worth trying to do while people are seemingly obsessed with the rat race that we're currently in?
2: It's a good question and, as I always say, there's no single answer for anything. To me there's two issues perhaps that I can talk to. One is absolutely if tomorrow we could all be in the luxurious position of having time and support to contemplate our lives, to think about how we fit in, to understand all of the situations that we're, the history, the systems that we live within, and we all have this aha moment, then, yeah, I think that would be lovely. But what's the reality of that actually going to happen? Possibly not in my lifetime. But what I'm interested in, and when I talk about systems change, I don't mean systems change that comes from top down. I don't mean some magical wave of wand and we all wake up and something's different. It would be great, but it doesn't work that way. So it's a weird tension between both. The kinds of people, it's all about people in terms of the change we need to make, the kinds of people who are advocating for systems change have to some extent had that kind of internal journey or, like me, born to love animals and just want to see how you know I could be of use to things so I think the personal journey and the systems change journey is as usual entangled and messy but what I I think what a lot of systems change people would argue is the following any day that a baby is born and takes its first steps eventually and lives in this community it is born into a whole bunch of systems that it had no control over making in the first place So just as likely if a bunch of elders decided that the ways we were living were not effective and they wanted to change the rules so that in five years' time, the next baby that's born is literally born into a society that values slightly different things, that supports different aspects, then that baby is benefiting from the wisdom of the previous generation. So I think if we think about systems change not so much as an either-or, you either do systems change or you change yourself, it's all a great big muddle. And the systems we want to change are literally created by human beings in the first place, and it's going to have to be some human beings who help to shift some of them. It's going to be messy. But the thing I would like, the thing that I guess I do occasionally daydream about and this shows what a governance nerd I am, is the day when my grandkids go to school and the school doesn't look like the current school. It's it's an outdoor education space, and they're allowed to do the kinds of things that kids should be doing at that age, not sitting still and staring at a board or listening to one person yabber at them, but actually out and about. You know, school is different. Um, when people go to work, um, work is different. You know, the teenager of today, I'd love to think that when they're in their late 20s, They're not trapped in casual employment or a nine-to-five. Maybe there's a completely different way of being where they're really happy. They've got a bit of universal basic income to support them. They top it up with some excellent work. They share with volunteers. They live in a community that's, you know, got a bit of share housing so everyone can afford a good place to live. That's systems change. Whereas if my grandkids are born into a world where houses are now, you know, $3 million instead of a million, only a small select elite taught in small select elite universities have any opportunity to get a certain kind of job they like and everyone else is snuffling around in really crappy paid jobs. I mean, that's when the systems haven't changed. So not everyone has a capacity to be engaged in systems change work, nor do they have, you know, the interest, you know, the football player who just loves just loves his sport. He's not probably often going to be the one in, engaged in doing law reform work but he might be the one who helps young kids learn about something else. So I think just the sheer difference in what human beings are interested in, the sheer variety of work that has to be done to make our world better and safer um, for people, yeah, I just I just think that it's it's not either or. There's a phenomenal amount of people who are engaging in the their own self-learning, turning that into good activities. But as I, I read something on Facebook the other day, um, I think it was something like, Just because you do yoga and you reflect on your own place in the world, it doesn't actually mean you're bringing anything good into the world. You do actually have to do something with others uh, or bring some ideas and work together with others. So so it's not either or. I I hope that answers your question. My view is it's a great big muddly mess. We all play a different role if we can. And if we're lucky, we might see some change from our work in our lifetime. Maybe we won't but you just keep
0: going yeah so there's a little bit of you know the top down leaders you know the leaders coming through and uh, the politicians you said the labor government hopefully can do something you know maybe some corporates can do something maybe the un can do something whatever it might be but basically the main change will come from those people that are within groups in their local communities and you talked about the tapestry before you know if you, you need both. Do you yeah. need both? Can, do you, do you,
2: oh, you need everything. Yeah. You know, the, the, if the problems we face today are so complex. We've made our societies so complex. Um, you need as many people as possible involved because, you know, one person might want to make sure that young kids aren't incarcerated And somebody else might want to make sure that, you know, wombats don't go extinct. There are so many issues. And it really, again, thinking back to what I talked about with the history of how extractivist societies like Europeans, and they're not the only ones, but this is my people, my culture, the history that has brought us to where we are with our current systems, you know, it's quite old in terms of modern societies. It's the patriarchal legal system from the UK is more than 1,000 years old. So there's still a lot of complexity and a lot of work to be done to change some of these things. But I'm not saying it's impossible and I'm not saying it has to take a 1,000 years. Um, Some systems change, things can happen quickly. And, And to be very clear, I don't see a lot of immediate change being done by corporates. I think my flippant comment was if I had as much money as some of the big businesses do to just promote shoes or chairs, if we had that money to kind of share into society, hey, let's think about our culture, let's think about Mother Nature, what's going on in this space, then I think that would help with supporting some kind of systemic cultural change or at least a a cultural questioning. That that was all I was saying. I I still think that even so-called top-down law reform, most of that comes from communities arguing for a change in something or particular lawyers in an environmental defender's office or, you know, particular politicians who are Greens or someone else who've come through the ranks to try to make particular change. So even some aspects of top-down is still really emanating from grassroots and local people pushing for something in the first place, and that's certainly the area that I work in. So.
0: Yeah, and as you said, the teal independence coming through and, and that sort of group... Um, But also
2: if you want systems change, the whole political system sucks. mm. You know, voting for people and then letting them represent us every three years, voting every three years and letting them make decisions, that's actually not the best way to have participation. Mm. And this is systems change. So systems change would say, well, hang on, how do local people have a greater say over the future of their local region? And that's one of the things we work on. And Greenprints, our program greenprints.org.au is looking at how how we can shift the entire legal system so that Indigenous and local communities who live in a place can be guaranteed to have their river systems and their soils, you know, looked after and not eaten up by incoming corporates or faraway governments leasing out land. So the systems of political change, they need to change too because there are other places in the world where you have a lot more say through deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies... Uh, liquid democracy there's other ways for everybody to be involved in caring for themselves and caring for each other and country so and I could you know every time people say things I start to break it down it's like a tree you don't just trim the leaves at the top you go down to the root and Mm. go well hang on what if we change the soil this tree's growing in then it might actually look different and our political system's crying out for that um, as well as legal economics education,
0: yeah, and I think it, I I often get stuck into that the uh, the the leaves, you know, that one, yep. you know, that branch, that leaf, and then I yep. re- I do always, upon reflection, realise that it has to go much deeper than that. And but uh, when we're talking about this, are we talking about revolution? Like I oh, I I don't believe in violence and in mob mentality, and I know you don't too <laughs> either. But you know, like there is this idea of We've got to have a revolution, whether it's the left or the right, you know, whether it's fascism or communism or something in between, to to break down and and you know, you grab your your dogma and you place it in society because it's right. And I know you're not well, saying that at all, I, but what, yeah, what are you saying in terms I of I haven't way really
2: heard of anyone talk about revolution for a long time, certainly in stable societies like Australia. We have one of the oldest continuous written constitutions in the world. Um, We very rarely make changes to our constitution. We have an incredibly stable system. I never talk about revolution, in Australia at least. Um, What I talk about, and I've mentioned it in the early parts, is to understand the systems we live in and to work out where the tweakables and the changeables are, to unpick bits of them and put them back together. So we don't have to give up our stable legal system, but we can have a legal system that sees the living world differently. Um, We could respect Indigenous first laws um, rather than have the monopoly of of European-style laws squish them and make them, you know, disappear in the mainstream system. What I'm talking about is being smart, being clever, understanding how our world works. And by our world, I mean Australia. Um, You know, I could sit down with you and explain how in um, the different aspects of our economy, if we change what we measure, if we moved away from GDP, we move towards a different kind of index if we moved these elements and these elements so that people could have um, greater access to affordable housing or socially just uh, ways of supporting employment. That's sort of a systems change. It's an element inside of that, but it's not a revolution. And it's the same with the kind of law aspects we talk about. I'm really interested in how local people can have a greater say, almost like a citizen's jury, about different things coming into their community. Um, Big corporates, everyone from Lendlease, Woolworths, they all know 20- and 30-year plans for where they're going to move in and what they're going to do. Ordinary communities, and I've seen this for decades, are sitting there fighting the next development, fighting the next development, trying to get access to information from their local council or their state policy. If you turn that on its head and say, actually, we think there should be processes that exist on the ground with ordinary human beings who live in a place to have a greater say over what does and doesn't happen, that's not a revolution in terms of people marching in the streets and setting fire to cars. It's a revolution in terms of law reform. You can easily change aspects of our local planning laws. You really could if you wanted to, but the political will's not there in many aspects and the corporate control of regulatory processes is very strong. So, there's, there's all these different, and that's what I mean, if you sit down and literally get a whiteboard and write down the system you're interested in see where the influencing pieces are, these guys lobby this government, these guys get away with that, this system prioritises this kind of development, this system does something else, and then you start to unpick it and reconnect it, and that's pretty much exactly what our Green Prince program is all about, actually understanding what local places need, unique local bioregions, unique local communities, how can they pattern themselves back into place and have a greater say um, over what's happening rather than let state, federal or corporate interests railroad them? So that's the kind of change I'm interested in, Um, smart people connecting up with how to make the kinds of change that continues stable, secure, livelihoods for people. We don't want folks to suffer, but we're smarter than this. We can definitely do better than this. That's one thing I believe.
0: Yeah. I, I absolutely love that because the, there is a stable, fantastic society that we're a part of in, in many ways that we do want to keep elements of. And it's just the yeah. diseased fringes or even the root system, you know, whatever it might be. We do need to transport the tree if you want a metaphor or whatever, but we do need to do something. But
2: Maybe graft some good stuff right, on oh and yes. then everyone everyone eats the fruit from the grafted bit. Well the, the other part of the tree slowly withers, yep. but you know, life continues, communities continue. So, I, I would never wish any harm or hardship on anybody, mm. but I, I I just have a great faith that most people are fair, most people care a little bit about the folks around them, and most people want a better future for their kids. And I don't mean money, I mean a livable planet. So I do think there's an awful lot more that we can be doing, Um, and I know this. I am encouraged by the huge number of human beings I'm engaged with on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis who are out there doing great stuff, and we just play our our little part in all of that.
0: Before I, I jump into the final question, those groups you're talking about, how can people that are listening to this podcast get involved in the work that you're doing, or You know, what would you encourage? What's your call to action?
2: Look, uh, we're an odd group because we don't campaign. We're not sort of campaigning for one thing at a time. We are systems change. So when folks ask me this question, I say, well, what are you most passionate about? What are you interested in? And then think, how can you contribute to that? Could it be that you really want to help young people connect with nature? Maybe you support groups that are already doing it. Do you want to um, help with ecological restoration? And maybe you've got a good job. Maybe you donate money to people doing that. Um, Maybe you're a lost soul looking for a place to belong and you want to volunteer and do different work. Then find a group. There's always room for people to connect and, and support work, like literally day to day. In terms of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance and the New Economy Network Australia and Future Dreaming, if anything I've talked about is of interest, then please just visit our websites. Earthlaws.org.au is the AILA website, the mothership, and neweconomy.org.au is the the civil society network. And futuredreaming.org.au is our Indigenous Partnerships Group, which started just as COVID erupted, so we're really just getting our straps now, sharing ecological knowledge. Um, But I always think, yeah, do what you can. It doesn't matter what it is, actually. Um, And and don't put pressure on yourself to be the only... Don't think that you're so alone. We're all little parts of a big, big community of life, both human and non-human. Burnout comes when you see the problems and you want to fix it and you can't do it all by yourself. You have to pace yourself. So find what you love, support what you love, whether you give money, give time, share ideas, just be kind to the person next to you. It's all good.
0: And finally, Michelle, incredibly, I, I would say inspire. I, I say this word, you know, inspired so often. But when I when I talk to you, I'm revitalized and I can see a pathway. Oh,
2: that's great. That
0: is so much <laughs> better. And, and 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 one particular thing that I did love is the idea of you know the almost the citizen juries, the juries for decision-making, it just makes so much sense rather than someone having to give up their life and go to Canberra or or campaign or whatever it might be and to to become a a politician when we've got, the knowledge we've got the people and the will and and maybe we need to even tap into those that don't have that right now but have some amazing ideas festering you know in the background somewhere
2: yeah absolutely and look the amount of work i've done with different communities whether it was our citizens inquiry along the, the barker darling river and listening to to farmers indigenous people local folks working in shops everybody knows their local place a bit you put them all together they know what needs to be done they know how to do it this idea this sort of mentality that we have I guess vested in our society that you have to become an expert in something to be of value or use Um, most of the people doing most of the excellent grassroots work could be an accountant by day and you know helping to replant trees on the weekend everyone has all these multiple parts to themselves and I do think You can play a part in any way you want, as an expert or on the community uh, landscape, you know, doing different things. So, And don't take away from the good politicians. You know, we need everybody doing great things, but I just wish everyone could sort of tune into the fact that it's not just humanity we're working for, it is all of the other plants and animals. And if nothing else resonates after, you know, my people listen to this podcast, you know, please consider the plants and the animals in all of your decisions. Think about, you know, what would the wombats say? Um, what would a koala consider important? And and think about some of those things when we slow down and value this very short life we have on this incredible planet. I know I'm grateful every day. I think that's my greatest, the greatest thing. For some reason, I was born with gratitude. Um, really grateful, really grateful to be around all these cool things like plants and animals. So
0: Well, well you've provided me with a moment of clarity today, Michelle. So... What has been something that has sparked a moment of clarity in you recently?
2: So many. I'll have to pick one. Look, I learn all the time. Um, I do feel... This might be a bit random, but I listen to a lot of history podcasts and they're really weird and nerdy, like literally the history of the British East India Company. You know, my brain's always going, where did these structures come from? How did they become so powerful? My moment of clarity, I guess, just on the weekend while I was um, very energetically weeding my garden and listening to a podcast was the fact that corporate power has eaten up the world because it's been in partnership with governments, but... There are a lot of ways that we can pull that apart again. And so that's that's my new little brain buzz is how do we how do we strengthen people who are caring for place? And how do we maybe take away some of the privilege of some of those bigger, powerful groups? I don't know if that's a moment of clarity or just a little moment of hmm, food for thought. Let that one roll around until we turn it into some action.
0: Brilliant. Thank you
2: so much.
1: Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really uplifting but also insightful so thank you very much and we'll catch you soon
2: thank you very much for your time
0: thank you so much for listening to moments of clarity if you are enjoying the podcast there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues, and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at moments of clarity podcast via our website moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.